Section 29 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 6. The Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 5. John W. Langley. I am Baltimore agent for the Continental Life Insurance Company of New York. I knew Mr. Goss before he came to Baltimore. Knew him in Nashville, Tennessee. Goss met me one day on Baltimore Street and insisted upon going to see some portraits. I went with him into a photographer's, where I reluctantly consented to a sitting for a picture. I sat in a chair, while Goss stood behind me, and in that way our pictures were taken. I am quite familiar with his personal appearance. I remember him as a heavy-built, muscular man, dark curly hair, and wore a mustache and beard. I frequently noticed his teeth. They were unusually fine, regular, and white. It was a feature which exhibited itself in his ordinary conversation. He had a large, open mouth, and when talking, would disclose his teeth distinctly. Mr. Goss came into my office with a sample of what he termed a substitute for India rubber. It was a square piece of ordinary India rubber. He showed it to me, and offered me a partnership interest in the business of its manufacture if I would put in a certain amount of money. He asserted the sample to be his manufacture, and said that he had shown it to New York rubber men, and they could not distinguish between it and genuine rubber. I found that I could not see any difference. He said to me that one of the constituent elements of its manufacture was sea water. A. R. Carter I have been agent for the Continental Life Insurance Company. Mr. Goss came into our office one day in the month of December, 1871, and exhibited a sample of what he said was a substitute for India rubber, which he said he was manufacturing. He handed it to me. It was about three inches long and an inch and a half thick. I said to him it looked and felt and smelled like India rubber. He said there was not a particle of India rubber in it, but was made from materials which he got out of Chesapeake Bay. I satisfied myself, by pressing it with my hands and by its odor, that it was a piece of genuine India rubber, and told him so. He would not allow me to cut it. Mary A. Parsons I reside at number 41 North Calvert Street, and was keeping the boarding house in which Mr. A. C. Goss lived at the time of the fire. I distinctly recollect that evening. Mr. A. C. Goss was not at supper in my house that evening. After tea, I was in my parlor as usual, and stayed there until after nine, when I went to my dining room. Mr. Goss was not in the parlor then. When I returned to the parlor, Mr. Goss was in there. Mine is a small table. It only seats twelve. I always preside at the table." The next morning, we had a conversation about this catastrophe, and in talking it over, we noticed the fact that Mr. Goss was not at supper that evening, and wondered where he was. My mind is clear on that fact. Cross-examined. I saw Mr. Goss between half-past nine and ten o'clock that evening. 
I looked at the clock as I passed out and into the parlor. I should not have thought of these facts, but that the next morning, my attention having been called to them, we commented upon Mr. Goss not having been to supper the night before, and wondered where he was. Miss Mamie Parsons I am stepdaughter of preceding witness, was living with her the night she has spoken of. The first time I saw Mr. Goss that evening was at about half-past nine o'clock. I was sitting in the parlor when he entered. The morning of that day he had made an arrangement to spend the evening with me. Afterwards he left a written message for me, saying that he had to meet his brother, in consequence of which he would be unable to return until rather late in the evening, and was sorry he had to break his engagement. He was at dinner with us that day. I was at supper with my mother that evening. Mr. Goss was not present. When he came into the parlor at half-past nine that evening, I said to him, You are back sooner than you expected? He answered, Yes. I am fixed in my recollection that this was on the night of the fire and of the supposed death of Mr. Goss's brother. Cross-examination. The note was written me the same day he made the engagement. I did not receive it until about six o'clock after I had gone into the parlor. It was lying on the mantel, and someone in the parlor called my attention to it. Mr. Goss left my mother's house the next evening and ceased boarding there. Mrs. E. M. Dudley. I reside at number 41 North Calvert Street in the house of Mrs. Parsons. I have resided there four years. I am principal in one of the primary schools in the city of Baltimore. My recollection goes back to the time when this affair took place, which is said to have resulted in the death of Mr. W. S. Goss. Owing to circumstances, I remember it, the circumstances impressing it more deeply on my mind. The next day after the fire being Saturday, and I being away from school, I was in the parlor about half-past nine o'clock in the morning. I am not there on other days. A note was brought in for Mr. Goss, saying that his brother had been burned in the fire the night before. Some one of us remarked at the time that Mr. Goss was not at home to tea the night before. I was myself at supper there the evening before. I can say positively that Mr. Goss was not there. His place at the table was opposite to mine, so that I could not help seeing whether he was there or not. Dr. John Thorne. I am a veterinary surgeon and have a livery stable. I was applied to immediately after dinner, on the day of the fire, by a man whom I did not know at the time, who wanted to hire a horse and buggy for that evening to go to Greenmount Cemetery. I asked him his name. He said his name was A.C. Arden, and that he lived at 314 North Utah Street. Question. Have you seen that person since? Answer. He is before me now. The witness identifies A.C. Goss as the man. He came about dusk and got the horse and buggy, and remained out with it until twenty or thirty minutes after nine o'clock. I have no doubt whatever about the identity of the man. Cross-examined. When he came back, he gave my man a pair of buckskin gloves. I saw Mr. Goss after that, and said to him that my man had a pair of buckskin gloves, and I desired to know if he came by them regularly, if they had been given him, as he claimed they were. I had but that one horse out that night, 
and I waited for it to return before I went to bed. I looked at the clock when he came back to the stable. James Gilroy At the time of which Dr. Thorne has just been speaking, I was in his employ as groom. I recollect the hire of the buggy. I noticed the man at the time. Witness identified A.C. Goss as the man who looked like him but could not say positively. He drove out with the horse about seven o'clock and returned about nine o'clock. He went down in the yard a piece and then came back and said to me, Here is a pair of gloves. You may have them. James S. McFarland. I am an officer of the Baltimore Police. Between eleven and twelve o'clock on the night of the fire, myself and Officer Hughes were standing at the corner of Madison and Utah Streets when a man approached us asking if we wanted a report for the newspapers. He then related to us the incident of the fire, saying that his brother-in-law, W.S. Goss, had been experimenting in some patent gum invention, when, through the explosion of an oil lamp or some chemicals he was using, the fire and death resulted. We went into a tobacconist's, where the store clerk wrote down the statement as related by Mr. Utterzook. The night reporters were in the habit of visiting the police station for news items, and this statement was given to one of them. Officer Charles E. Hughes corroborated the statement of Officer McFarland. Jacob Wright, the tobacconist's clerk, testified to writing down the statement for publication as Utterzook had related it to him. John C. Smith I reside where the fire occurred. When I reached the fire, the house had fallen in. I had been there about ten minutes when Martin Quinn directed my attention to something in the embers which looked like a skull. It was near the chimney, on the north side of the building. A long pole or ice hook was obtained, and I assisted in dragging the body from the fire. I placed the body in a box, and it was taken to Mr. Lowndes' stable. The next morning, the first thing after I got up, I walked over to the place of this occurrence. During the night it had been snowing, and I could see that nobody had been there that morning before me. I went there to find Mr. Goss's watch and jewelry, which I knew he carried on his person. I searched very closely right where the body had been pulled out the night before. I could tell by the remains of the chimney exactly where this place was. I found some bones, which I cared for, I used a piece of iron in raking and searching, and examined the spot very carefully. I searched particularly the spot where the breast of the body had lain. There had been a four or five inch fall of snow during the night, but the surface of the ground was bare where the fire had been. I placed the bones with the body in the box which was then in the stable. I found a melted glass bottle among the embers. This I brought away with me. Martin Quinn. I was present at the time of the fire. The flames were breaking out from the roof and the windows when I reached the spot. The building was all down when we began looking for the body. Mr. Lowndes came up to me with others and said to me, This man, meaning Mr. Utterzook, says that Mr. Goss must be in the fire. I turned to Mr. Utterzook and said, Do you say he is in the fire? He said, I am afraid he is. I said, why didn't you mention it before now, and we would have tried to save him? He said he did not want to make any alarm, as he was a stranger about there. 
Then we began to look around and saw something dark near the chimney. I pointed to it and said, If he is in the house, there he is. Mr. Johnson replied, No, Martin, that must be his India rubber. The color of the object was dark. No one ventured to go in after it but Mr. Smith and me. After the body was taken out, we threw a bucket or two of water on it to cool it off. If I had any suspicion or information, when I got to the fire, that there was the possibility of there being a man in the house, I could and would have broken in the doors or windows and gone into the house. I could have got in on the east side. Dr. James Hardy I am a practicing physician, and as such, have attended W. S. Goss on several occasions in the fall of 1870 and spring of 1871. Memorandum entry in my book reads, May 15, 1871, Mr. Goss visited, effects of a week's drinking whiskey. The next day I again visited him and found him suffering symptoms of approaching delirium tremens. On all the occasions I have had to prescribe for him, he was suffering from the effects of prolonged intemperance, the result of five or six days intemperate drinking. Dr. Theophilus Steele. I am a physician in general practice in New York City, where I reside. On the 20th day of January, 1872, I professionally attended a gentleman who gave his name as W. S. Goss of Baltimore. I was summoned in my capacity of police surgeon, and found him in the 15th Precinct Station House. He was suffering from delirium tremens. I found him in the garb of a gentleman, claiming to be from Baltimore, and I prevailed upon the sergeant to allow me to take him to his hotel, he objecting to go to the hospital where I had wished to send him. I took him to the Brandreth House, where I attended him that day and night, it was a slight attack of delirium, brought on by several days' debauch. I continued to attend him until the 23rd of January, when he was much better. I called on the 24th, expecting to find him at the hotel, and learned that he had gone, leaving some memorandum with the clerk, telling me he would call at my office. He did not call to my knowledge. He did not pay me for my services." My junior partner had some correspondence with him, and I received from him two letters. Witness produces the letters. Counsel for the defense here read to the jury the two letters as follows. Doctor, I am happy to say that I am much improved, but not entirely well. Please send me your bill, and I will either see you in the morning at ten o'clock, or will send. Please make your bill as reasonable as you can, as I have no more money than I want. Yours most respectfully, W. S. Goss. Doctor, I was much disappointed in not getting some money to settle my bill, but please don't feel uneasy, for I will most assuredly send it to you. I have received a dispatch which calls me to Philadelphia, but hope I will not be detained long, for I am not yet through with my business here, and will return soon. Hoping that I have not incurred your displeasure, and that I will meet you again, I remain, yours most respectfully, W. S. Goss. While I was in attendance upon him, I requested Colonel George Lemon, formerly of Baltimore, to see this patient with me. Mr. Goss stated to me, in answer to my inquiries, 
that he had had two similar attacks previously. Colonel George Lemon. I am a native and for many years a resident of Baltimore. I have resided in New York during the last six or seven years. Dr. Steele, the preceding witness, is my physician and personal friend. The doctor told me he had found a Baltimorean at the station house and had taken him to the Brandreth Hotel, that he seemed to be a very decent man, and suggested that I go there with him and see him. At his invitation I went. I saw the gentleman he had taken there. He was very shaky when I saw him. He told me that he was in business on North Gay Street, Baltimore, in the picture-frame and looking-glass business. Mrs. Catherine Smith I knew Mr. Goss, the party supposed to have lost his life at the fire, have noticed him in conversation, and observed the character of his front teeth. He had such beautiful white teeth, and they were so prettily shaped that I spoke of it. I have often observed his teeth, especially when he laughed and in ordinary conversation. They were plain, even, white, and very nice shape. Charles W. Hamill. I was acquainted with W.S. Goss previous to the war, and have met him frequently since. In my intercourse with him, I have observed his front teeth, and noticed they were regular and good. I took particular notice of them. Herman Bloom. I am a gilder by trade. W.S. Goss was in my employ from April 1870 to June 1871. He had no interest in the business. His wages were $15 per week. At this time, he had a fine set of teeth. He used to drink intemperately during this time. He became an habitual drunkard before he left my employ. E. Lloyd Howard. I am a member of the medical profession of the city of Baltimore, a professor of anatomy in the Baltimore College, also professor of anatomy in the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Baltimore. I was present at the exhumation of the body which had been buried in Baltimore Cemetery as that of W.S. Goss. The remains were taken to a private room in the College of Physicians and Surgeons, where a scientific examination was made. Doctors Miles, Gorgeous, and Wysong participated with myself in making this examination. All of us united in a report or expression of opinion as regards the medical facts we ascertained by our examinations. There was no difference in opinion among us as to the medical facts stated in our report. Of the sixteen teeth belonging to the upper jaw, nine teeth had been lost before death. By that I mean some time before death. There remained in the jaw two teeth. There had fallen out, since death, three teeth, and two sockets, which had once contained teeth, were shallow, so that it was uncertain whether these teeth had been lost before or after death. Nine of the sixteen teeth were certainly lost long before death, and two others possibly were. One of the teeth lost from the upper jaw was a front tooth. Of the teeth belonging to the lower jaw, seven were lost long before death. One tooth had been partially destroyed by disease, one root of a tooth and eight teeth remained in the jaw. Of the seven teeth lost, six were back teeth, and one was a front tooth, and the one of which the root only remained was a front tooth. 
this would have given the appearance of two front teeth lost from the lower jaw. Of the thirty-two teeth, sixteen were unquestionably lost before death, and of the sixteen remaining, one was only a root in the socket. The crowns of two of the front teeth approached one another over where a tooth had been lost. In the upper jaw, the palatine canal, which perforates the roof of the mouth just behind the two middle front teeth, was greatly enlarged by an abscess which had existed previous to death, and which abscess communicated with the diseased cavity of one of the front teeth. The abscess appeared to have formed about the root of the tooth. In our opinion, this abscess, communicating with the cavity in the bone, had absorbed or eaten through the bone to that extent, forming an opening between the socket of the tooth and this anterior palatine canal. It must have been considerably diseased to have left such lesions in the bone. It could not have been otherwise than very painful. We judged, from the facts pointed out, that the other teeth over the diseased root must have approached each other, giving a crooked, irregular appearance. Plaster model of mouth handed to witness. I have examined this model before, and found it corresponded very accurately with the jaws we examined. Question. In pointing out to the jury the place where this tooth, which has been destroyed by caries, and of which only the root was left, will you state the character of the teeth on the opposite sides, if they had been penetrated by caries, and how far? Answer. The tooth upon the one side, the left tooth, was very much injured by caries, which extended entirely through the tooth, so that we could pass a probe from one side to the other directly through the body of the tooth. End of section 29